you're turning on your phone, on your tablet, in your Bible. I want to say thank you to those who uh, did the hard work the last couple of Sundays. I was planned to be gone March 7th, and uh, I was. And then I was planned to be back last Sunday, and about 20 minutes before Stephen and I headed to the airport from my dad's house in Phoenix, we got a notice that our flight in Phoenix was delayed. That's going to make us miss our flight in Seattle. And uh, if that happened, if we had made it to Seattle, uh, we would have been stuck in Seattle for four days. Because there were no empty seats from Seattle to Anchorage between last Saturday and Tuesday night at midnight. There were two empty seats Tuesday night at midnight. And so we snagged those and stayed a few more days with my dad, which was a great blessing. But uh, thankful that last week was a big curveball for the worship team, tech team, because I was supposed to be here, and so it was all unplanned, but uh, they soldiered through, and I was able to watch uh, the service, and uh, you guys did a great job. I'm so proud of you, and thankful for you, and the work that you do. And then the Sunday before that, the Sunday that I was planned to be gone, we had planned uh, that, that service. Brian played piano, Mike was here, played drums, and then uh, Jim led with, uh, I think Nia was here, yeah, and uh, Karen was here for sure, Deb was here for sure, Jason was here, and, uh, and Jim led and did a fantastic job. I did, it was just so good, I was able to watch that service as well, and uh, man, we're blessed over the last several months as we've had to readjust to, for a while there, only online services.
prepared as pastor to go out of town was worrisome. Because you just knew things were going to go off the rails. But that hasn't been the case for a very long time around here. And it is, believe me, a tremendous blessing for me to be able to take that time and, and go help my dad and mom here as they needed some assistance. And, uh, and be able to know that things would just be great here at home that our people are dedicated. And so I just want to thank them for that. And if you have a chance when you see them, thank them for their hard work and their commitment because it is truly uh, a great blessing. I did have the chance to be with Charles and Bonnie at their church in Apache Junction, uh, Crossroads Baptist Church. And I was able to preach there on the 7th and uh, sang a little bit of music for them. to see what God's doing here. They've been in some long-term transition. I mean, uh, had a, a long-term pastor who retired, moved on, and then they had uh, called another guy along who then had some family issues with uh, health issues, and so he didn't stay for very long and had some transitional people, but they now have right now uh, a man named Rick Bosch who's a member of their church, has been there about 14 years, that uh, they've tapped to kind of be their intern. Go ahead and call him as their pastor because he is fantastic. What a great spirit and attitude. Connie and I have visited in that church before. And uh, let me just say the atmosphere right now in that church is an atmosphere that speaks to that they want to go somewhere and do something and reach their community. And I'm not so sure that that was what we sensed when we were there before. It was pretty, pretty kind of us for no more kind of attitude. And it's really exciting. And a lot of that is owed to. Rick and his leadership, and uh, my dad has been able to have some, some influence and kind of helping to lead the church to make some new decisions. So that's exciting. All right, enough of that. Uh, the only other thing I want to say before I jump into the, the scripture this morning, because it's important, is if you've received the newsletter, you've seen the information about uh, Holy Week, Monday, Thursday at Rabbit Creek Community Church, Good Friday here at Christ Community Church, and of course, Easter Sunday, April 4th. I would encourage you to uh, get signed up for those. And in typical Alaska fashion, yesterday, we had eight people signed up for Thursday. And this is from both churches, by the way. Eight people for Thursday and four people for Friday. What's going to happen is people are going to wait till the last minute to try and sign up. And there are limited seats available for both of those events. So uh, you can go on our website, c3ak.com, right there on the main page sign up for those events. If you go on Facebook, you can see the events at Rabbit Creek Church and get a little bit more detail, but I think everything's there. And I know there were some issues with the links that I sent before, but these links should go directly to the sign-up, and I would encourage you to do that. Uh, Thursday night, Monday, Thursday at Rabbit Creek will be a visible representation of the Last Supper table, and we're going to talk about the elements. We have several different personalities on the program that night who will talk about the different elements of that night. Um, the foot washing, the anointing, the spices that were used at the table, the, the foods that were used at the table, the meaning of the bread, the meaning of the wine, the meaning of the table. So we're going to put all of those together and kind of cap that off with a critical event of the evening. And then Friday night's going to pick back up right here with a theatrical production that we are putting together. It's all original. 
fun putting that together. A little bit stressful, as Karen will tell you, because I lost four days of not being able to get to my computer to do the technical work that I thought I was going to have, but it's coming together quickly, and, uh, and I'm excited about it. So go, guys, c3aka.com, right on the home page. You can click that link and go ahead and sign up for those two nights. They're going to be an hour or less each night, so it's not, it's not a ton of time. It's a block, so we come back and really trying to go for to be kind of intense and meaningful and, and really get in there. So I think that you would enjoy that and it would be meaningful for this season. All right, so all of that to say, let's go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 46 is where we're going to start. And we are just continuing to work our way through with uh, Mark. Uh, we've Skipped over a couple of things, and we're probably going to we're going to jump ahead uh, jump ahead to this spot because this takes us to really the, the triumphal entry, and then we're going to be able to talk about uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection uh, leading up to uh, Resurrection Sunday on April fourth. But here we are. I love this story uh, about this, this character. A lot of times we see the stories in Scripture where Jesus encounters people, deals with people. Um, Performs miracles, heals souls, and a lot of times they're nameless. We don't necessarily have their names recorded, but uh, we have this name recorded, and I love that that makes it a little bit more personal because we have uh, a name to put with this story. And I think one of the reasons that we have this man's name is because at the end of this little passage of scripture, you'll see that this man encountered Jesus. He asked for something he needed. Jesus met his need, and then his immediate response was to follow and go with Jesus. And that, that's your outline for the text this morning. That Jesus is there, someone has a need, they seek Jesus to meet that need, and he does. And their natural, appropriate response then is to follow him. So that's where we are. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Barnabas, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. All right, so we, we have our setting here. We're leaving the city of Jericho. Now, generations and generations after Joshua was at Jericho, remember? When God's people came into the promised land, Jericho was one of the strongholds that, that they had to defeat in order to take over the land. And uh, we know that story of Joshua. So, you that story of Joshua being told to take the people of Israel and the priests with their horns and march around the walls of Jericho. And that on a particular time, a particular day, a particular number of times that they marched around, they would blow their horns and the walls of Jericho would tumble. And it wasn't, I mean, it's been within the last 15 or 20 years that they think that they maybe have found the historical location of Jericho and have found some places where the stones are arranged in such a way that it seems to hint at this event in a 
historical way, not simply something we find as a story in the Bible, something that can be somewhat verified. And in the manner of, of the Jewish people, it wouldn't be surprising that they would leave some of those stones in their ruin as a reminder, as a remembrance of what God has done. We see this all throughout uh, Scripture. There's, a, there's an old-timey word that we're not used to. Uh, we get it in one of our songs. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither to thy home. Ebenezer is a description of a stone monument. And we see this throughout Scripture, whether it's sometimes it's a well. They'll build a well in uh, Jacob's well. And that will be a reminder. It's not just a well for dry water, but every time someone goes to that well, the stories that came about to bring that well into being, how God led the people, are told again and again. Uh, there's a couple of places where it says in Scripture that they something happened, like when they crossed the Jordan, they built a monument, and it stayed there for, quote, all time. What that meant is from generation to generation, whenever the people then went back to that place, they would see the monument. And because the Jewish people were an oral history tradition, the stories would be told again of what God did. Hey, you see that pile of rocks over there? You know what that's about? Let me tell you. And so it stands to reason that probably as God did this mighty work in the city of Jericho, they would have left some of those stones turned over and tumbled down as a way to remind generation after generation of the great work that God did. Every time I think about the story of Jericho, I think about uh, when Karen and I were in, in high school, I was dating someone else at the time. Her best friend. Um, yeah, God knows, my friend Hubert back here. Just moved back into Anchorage. We went to high school together. We were in group together. We had taken a trip in our church bus. It was a it was a motor coach. That's a pretty nice bus. Nineteen sixty seven GMC tour bus. And we were going to Oregon, making a big road trip down the outfit. Who does that? I mean, looking back on it, I mean, what a stupid idea that was. Anyway, to take a bus trip to Oregon with a youth group to do vacation Bible school, but whatever. We were having fun um, until the uh, transmission and engine blew out in the uh, in Fort Nelson, British Columbia. Now, I haven't been to Fort Nelson, British Columbia in a long time, but I suspect there still isn't much there. And there wasn't much there yet. We hung out there for a week uh, and then vacation Bible school, and then we're uh, able to get the bus repaired, and we headed back home. On the way back, we stopped in Whitehorse, which, of course, is considerably larger. We went to a, a lovely church there, and we were just told the story about, as we were driving through town, one of the guys that was with us from the church said, hey, you see that place over there? We look over, there's this building that's just, like, falling apart. And he said, that's, uh, that place over there, that was, like, the hangout for the drug dealers, and a lot of our kids were getting wrapped up in a lot of bad stuff, and police couldn't seem to get a hold on it. He said, one night at youth group, we were reading about Jericho, and one of our kids said, why don't we go march around that place and shout and see if God would just knock it down? So they did. They set up a plan. They kind of patterned it after the, the text in uh, the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. They had multiple nights that they went, and the church ran 
You didn't sit in your mom's basement to play your video games. You went out to a place that had rows and rows and rows of magical coin-operated video game machines. It was, I'm a little nostalgic for that. That's what this place was. But it was also a place where a lot of terrible things were happening. So they would go out there on Friday nights, and it was buzzing, like hopping. And the whole group would march around, and they'd sing worship songs, and they'd pray, and then they'd have a big signal, and they'd all stop, and they'd just shout. I don't know if they shouted, Hosanna, ah! I don't know what they shouted, but they shout. And they did this once a month for seven months. And they said by the seventh month, nobody was going to the arcade anymore. It was like people were getting tired of I, I don't know. It seemed like a work of God. It seems like a scratch in one time. But here's the bottom line. When we got there, the place was in shambles. It was literally pieces of it were falling off, and it was no longer uh, active. And they said that uh, many of the students who were there with us in the youth group were kids that then they had been able to minister to and witness to as they marched. And they'd be like, what are you guys doing? They had a chance to share the word. So I think of that every time I see this story about how that group was able to take a principle from the Old Testament and sort of apply it and ask God for a work. And somehow he worked through that. I think that's amazing. And so we have this guy, Bartimaeus, right outside the city of Jericho. And he's blind, it tells us. A blind beggar. And when he heard, verse 47, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on I remember a couple of components of the story that we've just heard, and it, it ties in with everything that we've been talking about the last several weeks. As we make this progression to next Sunday, the triumphant entry, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, mounted on the back of a colt, and the people praise him, celebrate him, shout Hosanna to the King of Kings, they throw their cloaks on the ground, they lay down palm branches and make a carpet as if he's a king, they call him the King of Kings. This has been a momentum that has been building of the crowd gathering, the crowd growing. Uh, started with, uh, back when we were talking about some of the other events in the book of Mark, there were just a handful of people, some religious leaders and the disciples, and then week by week, gathering people, the excitement that is around Jesus. And so, Barnabas, you can picture him, he's obviously a fixture that's been around for a while. He's there at the side of the wall in Jericho. He's outside, he's begging like he does every day. He can't see. He doesn't really know what's going on around him. And yet, the fame and the excitement of Jesus has become so prominent that that even Bartimaeus has heard. Probably days before this event occurs, the word is beginning to spread among those who are sick, those who are infirm, those who are blind, those who are deaf, those who are without, that this man, Jesus, has been in the region and performing miracles and great things have happened, and maybe, maybe he's going to come this way. He's, he's going all over the place, talking and teaching and healing. So on this day, as it said, Jesus leaves the city of Jericho. He walks out the gates of Jericho to the outer wall with what? A great crowd following And you have to know that for Bartimaeus and the other people who were out there, this was different. 
conversation, and we would just walk around, and we would hear that conversation. But if we took that same thing and went to the Alaska State Fair, and we took those people and put them all in one place, started having a conversation, and walked around, the sound level is different. The energy is different. And this is what happens. Bartimaeus realizes that something different is happening in this moment. And because he's heard the stories, the fame of Jesus, he immediately thinks, this must be Jesus. This is Jesus who's walking around here.
when he then verbalizes, because honestly, who can give mercy that Barnabas needs other than God? He tells him the son of David, uh, Barnabas probably a Jew, he's been educated from the temple, he knows that the son of David is a, a name given not just to anyone, but to the Messiah. So there's so much wrapped up in this simple phrase, Son of David, have mercy on me. He's asking, he's asking the Messiah who he has recognized. He says, this is the Messiah. I've heard the stories, I've heard the great things that he's done, I've heard some of his teaching, I see what's happening, I believe he's the Messiah, he's the Son of David. The descendant of David as the Messiah would have to be. And I want him to have mercy on Whatever that was. And then in verse 48, says this, And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Now why would they do that? It doesn't really tell us who these people are. Is it, is it the disciples? There's a, remember, there's a great crowd. My... My guess, as good as anybody else's guess, my guess would be that it's, it's people from the city who know him and are used to marginalizing him because he's a blind beggar. And who cares? What good is he? All he ever sees is out there with his hand up. Remember, in this culture, a lot of times when someone had an infirmity, was considered to be a curse from God, but they somehow deserved that. So that people like this are being further marginalized and pushed to the edges of society, treated so poorly. And so then there was also the attitude of, if, if, if you're someone who God has cursed and this is why you are this way, you don't have any right to speak out to him, like, look at this great teacher, look at this great man, all the things that he's done. You don't, he doesn't want to talk to you, you're, you're nothing. And I love what this describes, it says, and he rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more. The more they told him to be quiet, the louder he got. We don't know how long Barnabas has been blind. We know from something here in a moment, you'll see it, that he has not been blind his entire life. At one time, he had sight, and then through some circumstance, or disease, or accident, it's taken from him. And I love the passion that we see in this man who realizes that his salvation is near. He does not know what that's going to look like because remember at this point he did not ask for his sight. He asked for the Messiah to have mercy on him. And when those around him would push him down and tell him to be quiet and tell him that he wasn't worthy. He was so moved and so intent on getting the attention of the one who could bring him some sort of measure, some sort of measure of mercy that he would not be put down. And he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. It must have been loud to be heard in this crowd, but Jesus heard him. He says, and Jesus stopped. 
said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And then we get down to the intersection here. Remember, one lane of that intersection was Bartimaeus, recognizing the Savior and asking for mercy. And the intersection of Jesus comes in right here. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? Jesus gets very specific very quickly. Now he heard him, right? Because it said, And Jesus hearing him stopped. He said, Bring that guy over here. So he heard him say, Son of David, have mercy on me. Asking for nothing specific. Jesus calls him to himself, gets in his face, and says, What is it that you want? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And this is an interesting phrase. Because if we look at it in the context of the original language, it is not, it's not immediate. He's not saying, make me see right now. He's saying, make it possible for me to see again. He's so, Bartimaeus is so, like, self-deprecating here. He's, he's not particularly self-interested. He's, he's called out for mercy to the one that he believes is the Messiah. The Messiah has called him, and is face to face with him now. And Jesus says, what do you want? And he still won't say, I want to see. He says, let me recover my sight. Let it let my sight be something that could come back to me. Let me recover it in the same way that it was lost at one time. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. And this is an exciting story about how, how one hears Jesus uh, walking by, he's heard the stories, he calls out to him, he recognizes who he is, Jesus gets very specific and asks him what he wants, and he gets then very specific and says, well, I'd like to be able to see again, and Jesus responds in an immediate way, his sight is re restored, but what is Bartimaeus's response to that mercy? He has this Again, has this kind of selfless response. And instead of running around looking at everything that he couldn't see before, running home to tell his family, maybe to see friends that he hadn't seen before, or seen in a long time, his immediate response, he says, is then to follow Jesus. And I wonder if in our own lives, at times when we are unclear about things. We seek God for mercy, for vision, for purpose. When He comes through, when He delivers, it seems to me that our response to that should always be 
than to follow him more closely. And I have to say, sometimes I'm guilty of not taking it that way. I'm thankful for what God's done, and I just kind of go on with my business. I'm thankful that he continues to be gracious. But I also hope that I'm becoming more of the one who will see the blessing, the mercy that God pours out on me from time to time. And that that will inspire in me greater devotion. And I would suggest to you that in some measure, sometimes in great measure, sometimes in less, we are all like Bartimaeus. It's even just a little bit blind. In fact, the writer of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul, talks about this. That, that famous chapter, the love chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we talked about this not too long ago. We, we hear this in... Um, Marriage ceremonies, and we talk about, you know, uh, love bears all things, love conquers all things, love believes all things, love is never selfish, love is never unkind. And we talk about that in the context of a romantic relationship, and that's fine, although that's not really what this text is about. <laughs> but at the end of that section, the, the writer here has talked a lot about the body of Christ and how we're all members of one body and that different members have different functions and that the body needs all of the members in order to function properly. And then he talks about the way of love, how our interaction with one another should be grounded in this love that patterns after the love of God. That we should be living that love out towards one another. And then he talks about how there are these gifts that God has given, gifts of prophecy, the gifts of tongues, and that one day those gifts will pass away. And that, that we ought not desire certain gifts like the gifts of tongues, because as he says, the gift of tongues lifts up the person, the individual, but in this case, the gift of prophecy lifts up all of the assembly. And then he says this in verse number 9, 1 Corinthians 13, 9. Actually, we're going to start in verse 8. Thank you. Go back there, Jeremy. Okay, remember if I went back to verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away, and as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. I'm going to stop right there. What does he mean by we know in part, we prophesy in part? It simply means that whether we have knowledge that God has given us that, that didn't come from our own eyes, it's knowledge that God has imparted to us. Or if we understand things, that this is what it means to prophesy, we understand things about the Word of God and how it applies to our lives, and we can teach it to others and give them some insight into how God intends to work. Even if we have those gifts, he says, we still only have them partially. They're not fully realized. Why is that? Because we, we still struggle with the sin nature. We're still imperfect. We're not perfecting. That's why he says, but when the perfect comes, so for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And uh, scholars tell us, we understand from theological scholars, that this is a, is a foreshadowing of when we are fully in the presence of, of God. When we have left this body 
had been transformed into our eternal being, our eternal selves, to live with God, to reign with Him in all of eternity. That's when the partial will pass away. And so it's like this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And here's the part about all of us being at least a little bit blind. For now, we see as if in a mirror dimly. But then, when, when then, when the perfect comes, then face to face. Now, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now, this mirror thing is a little difficult for us to completely wrap our brains around because we have modern mirrors. We didn't have modern mirrors back in Jesus' day. Mirrors were typically polished metal of some kind. And if you've ever tried to look at yourself in the bottom of a stainless steel pan that isn't highly polished, you know that it doesn't look the greatest. Or if you've got a piece of hammered copper that's been polished, you can see a reflection, but it's nothing like the mirrors that we have today. And so we have to understand what Paul is saying here. He says, when I look in this mirror that I have in my time, I see my image, but it's not fully realized, and it's dim. But someday, someday I will see I will see God not as if in a mirror that's fuzzy and difficult to decipher, but I will see Him face to face. And this is what Bartimaeus ultimately was asking for. It was couched in the terms of physical sight, but we understand from his confession of who Jesus is that what he really wanted to see was he wanted to see the Son of David have mercy on him and reveal himself. Whether he ever got his eyesight back or I would suggest to us that this should be our pursuit as well. It's never wrong to take our infirmities and our troubles and our sicknesses and our struggles and our trials and lay them before Jesus and say, can you do something with this? Can you help me with this? But underneath of all of that, I pray that our pursuit, our desire, our true want will be less about easing our circumstances and more about seeing Jesus for who he is in our lives more clearly than we did yesterday. And I believe that just like he did with Barnabas, if we will call out to him and say, Son of David, have mercy on me, his answer will be, what does he want? Can you come back and join me for a final song this morning?
another new one. Thank you.